0: Let us worship together as we read Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself.
1: Turn your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. If you're not already there, we're going to be in... Philippians chapter three verses seventeen through twenty one, and if you were with us last week, I reminded you that last week and this week <clears throat> the the messages sort of were somewhat related together, similar thoughts. So, just uh, by way of review, last week sort of how we encapsulated the concept of uh, what we were talking about was from here to heaven. I'm a Christian. I got saved. Uh, uh, I encountered Christ uh, through faith and the work He did for me at the cross. Uh, but I'm not home yet, and I'm not in heaven yet, and And what does it mean to have my heart and mind pursuing that goal of walking with Christ between here and glory? And uh, we just touched on a couple of ideas. Number one, watch out. we got to pay attention, look out, especially for those uh, who would lead us into falsehood by blending in and seeking to appear true. Uh, Look forward, that is, have our eyes fixed on where we're going. and, And finally, press on. Keep pushing. Press on and to to make the gospel our own. And so this morning, kind of picking up on that idea of um, from here to heaven, uh, we want to think about what uh, the passage tells us, which is the walk of the cross, and the walk of the cross. The idea of walking is, is really important because uh, walking uh, is something that you... Well, it's something you do. I don't know. You don't think about walking. I mean, you can think about walking. You don't go very far. Walking uh, has this idea. Paul says, yes, from here to heaven, watch out, look forward, press on, and that some of us will ask a very practical question. Okay, so how do we do that? And, uh, and, and Paul is going to draw us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and some ideas that are really important as we think about what does it mean to walk in the cross uh, of the cross of Christ from here until we get home to glory, the walk of the cross. In fact, if you go, speaking of walking, if you go to the National Park Service website, you can go to, uh, there's a national park down in California. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, It's really small. It's not a big deal. Yosemite? Has anybody heard of this? I don't know. Uh, But there's a a geological figure there called Half Dome, uh, and among geologists, they jokingly remind us, it's not Half Dome. About 80% of it's still there. Uh, And if you're a geologist, that joke is hilarious. hilarious um they don't get out much um uh, my apologies to the geologists uh um so if you go there's about a 10 minute video and you can watch it that gives you information on what you need to know if you're going to hike to the top of half dome it's you can hike a 10 to 12 hour hike uh it's uh it's up going and down coming back Uh, Other than that, there's a whole bunch of details, but it's actually very, very helpful to understand. There's going to be some terrain that's near waterfalls, and it doesn't matter if it's sunny out or raining out, the footing there is going to be wet. It's always wet because it's near waterfalls, so really good, helpful information about what it means. What does it mean to walk to Half Dome and back? Some good information on there, and we have to understand it's kind of what Paul is doing for us this morning, saying you, you found Christ and uh, you 've discovered him crucified, and you believe he is raised from the dead. What is the walk of cross? What does the walk of this cross look like over time? What should I think about, and what will I encounter so let 's uh, just draw out a couple of ideas here there 's a lot going on in this passage. What I really did on purpose was draw out two or three things that really are contrary to how we might normally think. Uh, so there 's a lot of other things in this passage, but I just know Two or three things is that these are things that both you and I as American believers would probably say, I would prefer it not be that way. And so I've kind of intentionally grabbed onto these. So the first one, the walk of the cross is a group activity. Number one, the walk of the cross is a group activity. I'll read again verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Join. Group activity. You don't join an individual activity. You are already an individual activity. You have to join something to be a part of a a group activity. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The walk of the cross is a group activity. If you join the military, probably any branch, I don't know, I'm not in the military, but I know this, uh, folks in the military learn to march. Is this a thing? Okay, I don't, I don't know. I've, I've never been in the military, but I've seen movies about the military. They seem to be marching. But one of these days, I was sitting there watching a movie. I said, why are they marching? When you actually get into battle, do they march? No, there's a lot of other skills that are necessary. Marching might not be one of the skills necessary to winning the battle. It, maybe it is, I guess, if you're a red coat. But that was a long time ago. Uh, so you might ask, well, why, why in the world do they march? And probably... Uh, People in boot camp all over the world are asking, why in the world are we marching? But the fact is, it motivates a group to stick together. It builds team uh, connectiveness. And it actually is a great motivator to see the enemy as less powerful because I'm a part of something much bigger. And so there actually is great uh, value that comes uh, from marching together even though in the heat of battle you're probably not going to be marching together it builds into the unit something connected that is important when battle is engaged and so we have to understand something here that something you and i might otherwise say why does this matter the command here is to imitate that is to observe those who are walking the walk of the cross but not only that to observe and join in others who are imitating. He says, keep your eyes on those who walk and join in together to imitate the walk of the cross you see in others. So the command is to do this together. See, if the Bible just simply told us to imitate Christ on your own in your home, many of us would say, well, that sounds fantastic. In fact, I hope to do that on my own. I hope to do that. But then the Bible comes at us and says, I want you to join others in walking the walk of Christ. And most of us say this, have you met them? They're a real pain. And and this is precisely why the Bible does this because our tendency and our fallen nature is to isolate and exclude, determine some are below me and some are above me and so I'm gonna do my thing on my own. The Bible knows this, God knows this and so he calls us out of isolation and in the gospel says, imitate the walk of Christ together join in and doing this uh, together and look what he says keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us he says watch those who are imitating the walk of the Apostle the walk of Christ and join in with others work together with others and what it means to walk that walk together so a couple of quick things coming out of the rest of the book of Philippians we've already been through it so I know you've certainly committed it to memory So just a couple of quick observations. Number one, one of the things that Paul wants them to imitate is suffering in the joy of Jesus. So one of the things he's talked about sort of on repeat in Philippians so far is what does it mean to suffer in the joy of Jesus? So when you're thinking of, well, who would I imitate? You might even right now in your mind be thinking, well, I know somebody who's going through some hard stuff. And they're not pretending like that stuff isn't hard. That stuff really is hard. But in the midst of that hard stuff, I can see the light of Christ shining. Well, I'd like to be able to imitate that when I'm going through my hard stuff. Well, how are you going to find out what they're doing and how they're doing that? You might have to call them up on the phone. You might have to invite them out for coffee. Hey, listen, I see your life as a train wreck. You might not start it (laughs) quite like that. But you know what I mean. Listen, I know you're going through. It's a very difficult time, but I see in you a hope that doesn't minimize your pain, but at the same time understands there's a hope in Christ. I want to know how to build that muscle. I want to know that in my life, when I encounter suffering someday in my life or the suffering I'm currently encountering, how do I do that in the joy of the Lord? And that person may give you some... Well, this is what God has done in me. This is what I have seen Christ... Uh, doing me So, one of the things he calls us to imitate is what does it look like, uh, what does it feel like to suffer in the joy of Jesus together? What does it mean to have a community of believers that are close enough that when I have suffering, I actually share it with others? I don't hide it for fear of being judged. So, one of the things Paul has outlined in the book of Philippians is imitate those who are suffering in the joy of Christ encounter them talk with them what does it mean what has jesus done in your life through the word and through prayer to bring you to the place where you can suffer and go through difficulty yet still have the joy of christ another area that paul has called people into imitating is obedience in the joy of jesus we've said this a couple of different times obedience is a bit of a naughty word in our culture obedience what does obedience mean when somebody in authority tells you to do something you do not want to do for reasons you don't care about and you do it anyway. Obedience is not somebody in authority telling you to do something you wanted to do and we're planning on doing already. Obedience by its very nature is somebody in authority telling you to do something you do not want to do for reasons you don't agree with. And so God comes to us and calls us into holy living. He tells us all kinds of strange things about what it looks like to live in Christ he talks about a financial fidelity and ethical fidelity and sexual fidelity and what it means to be committed to a body of believers and what it means to be committed to prayer and what it means to be committed to knowing the Word of God and all of these things sound great until we actually have to do them and then it becomes hard and we think God's off his rocker and obedience says what does it mean to live a life of obedience to live a life where I build habits into my life, where I seek the Lord intentionally, how do I do that? So you might be thinking in your mind, I know somebody who is, is committed to the Word of God, and they're not committed to the Word of God in some sort of legalistic, chained to the Bible sort of way. They seem to have a genuine joy in seeking the Lord through His Word. I wonder how that works. Take them out to coffee. See, this is good. You don't have to tell them their life is a train wreck. Say, listen, I know it seems like you're devoted to the Word of God, and I'd like to know, kind of, how, how does that work out in your life? And you know what they're going to say every time. I'm not that devoted to the Word of God. In fact, I'm frustrated that I'm not. That's what will generally uh, happen. You might encounter somebody, you know, when you hear them pray, or you know uh, from their testimony they're committed to prayer, you so, say, well, I don't know what it means to have personal prayer in my life. So you might encounter them, take them out to coffee, I want to know how to pray. And they're going to say, no, you don't. And you say, well, of course I do. No, you don't, because none of us want to pray. Three guys went to a prayer meeting with a guy named Jesus the night he was going to be crucified, and they went to sleep. And you want to come at me and say you want to pray. Nobody wants to pray, because we would rather be able to do it on our own. Prayer says, I'm going to go and do something that that admits to the Lord that I can't do it. And I want to know how to do that better. And so maybe I'm going to call and find somebody who is seeking the Lord and pray. Say, what what does this look like in your life? Not because you're perfect, not because you've got it, but because I want to imitate it. The walk of the cross is a group activity where we encounter and engage with each other in the Lord, uh, seeking to imitate one another. Just a couple more ideas, and then we're going to move on. One of the other things Paul talked about uh, in the passage we looked at last week was not having confidence in the flesh, What does it mean to imitate one another in not having confidence in the flesh and pressing on in the gospel for the future? What do we mean by this? The culture of the uh, church community is intended to be a culture that is by its very nature transparent about the fact that we need grace and yet very diligent in wanting to live the way God calls us to live. And it creates a bit of a tension. On the one hand, grace says... We can stand up and say, I'm not very good at being a Christian, but thank the Lord for grace. On the other hand, we want to say to each other, I want to be better at following Christ. So we want to have a culture that says, I winsomely and willingly am able to admit faults, admit where I fall down, be willing to confess my sin to others and acknowledge where I fall short. On the other hand, I also want to call others into holiness. We don't want to have a community that just simply says, Everything's okay. On the other hand, we don't want to have a community that says you have to be perfect. And you may already be thinking, well, I know somebody kind of like that. Their life is filled with grace. At the same time, they seem to be very diligent in following the Lord. Well, what does it mean to, to imitate someone whose life is filled with grace while on the other hand they still want to be diligent in following the Lord and building uh, habits in their life? The, uh, the life of the gospel in the community is terribly Terribly practical a quick illustration on this and this is a terrible illustration But it's the only one I could think of and usually it's the one you, uh, people remember So there was this little war we mentioned the redcoats earlier it's the revolutionary war I don't want to give it away who won it in case you haven't read the book um, um, So Britain was redcoats right I should have read it more recently so They they had this form of war talking about marching where they would march out and they would get in a line and, um, and then they would shoot, and then they would switch places, and the other people would shoot. And they would stand in an open field and shoot at each other. And uh, that's really, really helpful as long as everybody follows the rules. Uh, the Americans had this idea, what if we hid behind a log? I, I know at this point it seems somewhat novel. Like, okay, hide behind a log and shoot and then you can reload behind the log and shoot, shoot some more. And so, and so the American tactic was, is exactly what I'm talking about. On the one hand, they're admitting they're terrible at doing the war the way the British did. If we were really good at doing war that way, we would have just beat them doing that. By admission, we say, oh, we're terrible at that. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough gunpowder. We don't have enough lead. We need to make sure that most of our bullets find their target, and we need to make sure that most of their bullets don't find their target. So what do we do? We'll hide in the bushes and shoot from behind logs. Okay, This is terribly practical. On the one hand, it's an admission we're lame at war. On the other hand, it's practical in saying we want to win this war. And this is the gospel community. Grace says we're, admit We're terrible at following Christ. On the other hand, it's also terribly practical. Since we have the grace of Christ, why don't we pursue winning diligently? And this is what the gospel community looks like. And what I'm suggesting to you is if you know somebody who's living like that, who admits their need for grace, on the other hand, wants to live diligently for Christ, find them, take them out to coffee and say, how is it that your life is such a train wreck and yet you're still following Christ? Again, don't say that. I'm trying to keep you with me. Like how, how, do, how is it that you so clearly need the grace of Christ every day? On the other hand, you are following him so diligent. Because don't you normally think of this as two opposing things? Someone who is living in the grace of Christ tends to you know, sin all they want. They never do anything right. And then on the other hand, to do something right, you've got to be a legalist. And the Bible says, no, that's not the way it has to be. The grace of Christ leads us to the obedience of Christ, and that's really, really difficult to do without the Holy Spirit. And if you know somebody who seems to be chasing that down, take them out to coffee. Say, I want to imitate you. I want to do what you're doing. I want to see in my life what I see in your life, and I don't know how to do it. And Paul calls us to imitate one another, and it's a group activity, and we don't like it. The suggestion that I would suggests that we take somebody out to coffee and ask them how to walk more closely with Christ for most of us myself included we all that will never happen okay just so you know that is never going to, many of us in our hearts right now say that's never going to happen I want to show up at church sit in my chair have a guy yell at me then I will go home and tell my wife or my husband why he was wrong <laughs> that's how we want to do it hey listen I'll do it it's no problem but the idea of calling somebody up and saying, I need to imitate you in your walk with Christ, that is a category we don't have, and Paul is saying you, that's a category you need to have. Don't take them out to coffee. In fact, you don't have to. We get together once a week. I don't know if you notice, every week we get together. It's funny. You could actually come to church and talk about Jesus with somebody in the lobby and, and just grab them, hand them a cup of coffee, say, uh, I don't want to invite you to coffee. i got no time. But we're here, we show up here every week, tell me how you walk with Jesus. And so they're going to be floored that somebody at church asks them how they walk with Jesus. I know it's, (laughs) I thought you'd ask me about the football game, I thought you'd ask me about politics. No, no, no. I've I've seen you, Uh, you walk with Jesus, and you're also obviously a terrible person, you need grace. I love it. (laughs) I want to know how you're doing that. Again, some of us, I don't know, I don't want to do that, I want to come to church, get my donuts, sit down, nobody bother me. That's why I'm harping on this. The walk of the cross is a what? A group activity. Christianity is a team sport. We can't do it on our own. Let me show you how this works. Romans 12, it'll be up on the screen. Romans 12, 10, Paul says this. Love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. What he's asking for in the body of believers is to have a sense of devotion and affection. It is both emotional as well as covenantal, meaning it is a commitment that is a decision, but it is also something born out of a want to, being moved out of desire for one another in affection. And this is what he says comes out of that affection. You see it up there. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now listen, in Eastern cultures mostly, not really in the Western cultures like the United States and Great Britain and others, most Eastern cultures, as well as the culture the Bible was written in, are what we call honor-shame cultures. Which means I have a place in my community that's determined by whether or not I have honor or not. And that honor is typically inherited from a family or a place of origin. And my duty is to uphold the honor of my family or my clan or my tribe. And if I dishonor my family or clan or my tribe, I will have a reduced place in the community. And so therefore, it is my duty to maintain my place in my culture as well as my family's place in my culture. My duty is to earn and keep, honor and avoid at all costs shame. Paul turns that up inside its head and says, no, no, no. I don't want you to establish and keep your honor. Instead, in the body of Christ, you bestow honor. In fact, it's a competition not to see who can have the greatest place of honor. It's a competition to see who can bestow the greatest place of honor. See how it's upside down? Honor-shame cultures don't work that way. You earn honor and you keep honor. In Christian culture, we say, no, we'll just give it to you. And one of the ways we bestow honor is by going up to another person and saying, I need to imitate you. And the other person will say, no, no, no my, honor, my life is not honorable. My life is not honorable enough to be imitated. And that's where we come with the scriptures. I know that's why you're great. I am, I am seeking in the competition of who can bestow the most honor. I want to give you honor because I want to imitate your life and the way you are walking the cross. So what does that mean? Let me just suggest this as a sort of philosophical viewpoint. The people that you ought to imitate in the walk of the cross are likely the people you would normally never see. They're hidden. And they're in the shadows. And they're faithfully serving. And they're faithfully suffering. And they're faithfully praying. And you might not normally see them. The people that we would normally ascribe honor to likely are the ones we should avoid. They need to grow in the Lord a little bit more before we have this conversation. The ones that we should honor and imitate generally are small and insignificant and intentionally humbled and intentionally behind the scenes, and you will have to hunt and seek them out. And the ones who we would normally honor in our culture in many ways ought to be avoided. All right, so the walk of the cross is a group activity. We should have so much grace in the community of believers that we are willing in humility to recognize we need to imitate one another and get off our high horse and recognize people probably shouldn't be imitating us. Grace should be flowing so significantly in our culture and in our community that we have the humility to say I need help. I need to have input from others to know what it means to walk in the way Of the cross. All right, let's keep going in in Philippians uh, chapter 3. Look at verse 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. So, something we need to recognize, and even when something benefits us, it doesn't mean we're motivated to do it. Even when something benefits us, it doesn't mean we're motivated to do it. I can prove it to you. Uh, We talked a little bit last week about uh, New Year's resolutions, some people do those, and I'm not against New Year's resolutions. I'm totally into New Year's resolutions. Sometimes I do them, this year I didn't because my life is just great. No, it's not, I just, I couldn't pick one. uh, one, one writer put it this way, New Year's resolutions are for people who are lame at life last year. That's not nice. See, I think New Year's, well it's good, it's an opportunity to look at life. Uh, one, one person said to it, the unexamined life is not well lived and so, look at our life, New Year's resolution, that's great. However, how many resolutions are, are still going on six months down the road? About 80% of them have passed by the wayside. About 80% of New Year's resolutions are really never uh, completed. Now. The pessimist says, see, look, most New Year's resolutions aren't filled. An optimist says, look, 20% of people keep doing their New Year's resolutions. That's uh, fantastic. So the point is this. The things we want to do, the things that benefit us, sometimes we're not motivated to do them. After years and years of study and reading and observation, I've come up with this conclusion. Pay attention. Get out your pencil. Are you ready? People do what they want. No, I'm serious people do what they want and so sometimes what benefits us is not what we want to do and the Bible acknowledges that here and we have to recognize this and it's very very important the walk of the cross goes against our appetites the walk of the cross goes against our normal default appetites and the reason for this is sin when we rebelled against God Sin rewired our desires, our appetites, our motivations. That's what, in the Bible there in verse 19, it says, their God is their belly. They aren't worshiping their belly. It's their stomach. It's their appetites. It's their motivation center. And when we rebelled against God, that motivation center in our heart got rewired and now doesn't work right. The things that benefit us in our relationship with God are not things that we're motivated to doing Uh, long term, our appetites go contrary to the gospel. The gospel says this, all who receive Christ by faith receive the righteousness of Christ. Now, for those that we're in church, we've been trained, we're supposed to say, hey, that's fantastic news. Our appetites, when we acknowledge it, is this, I don't want to be given righteousness. I want God to recognize I'm good enough on my own. That is the default appetite of the human heart. I don't want God to have to give me righteousness I want God to finally recognize the reality I'm good enough on my own that's how our appetites work our appetites in fact are dangerous according to the Bible look what it says their end is what destruction not just bad consequences not just you know a bad day or dealing with addiction or trouble at home the end is destruction Pursuing our appetites takes us down a road of destruction, our mindset on earthly things. The walk of the cross goes contrary to our appetites. Now, primarily this warning that Paul is issuing is for itinerant teachers who were coming into the city of Philippians. And what they would do is they would get up and teach, and they would say, Jesus died for your sins, and Jesus forgives you. And guess what good news? He also wants you to have everything you've ever wanted. He also wants you to have every relationship you've wanted. He also wants you to have all the money you've ever wanted. He wants you to have all the security you've ever wanted, all the political influence you've ever wanted, all the sexual gratification you've ever wanted. All of these things is everything God has ever wanted. And thankfully, by the grace of Christ, you can pursue all those things, and everything's hunky-dory. And Paul says, no, 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 that is not right. The grace of Christ is not calling us to sin in the name of Christ. The grace of Christ calls us to walk knowing that the good news of the gospel runs contrary to the gospel. There's two ways this works. The enemy of the cross are both good people as well as those who would seek to follow their appetite. So let me just uh, illustrate with a couple of passages as we talk about the walk of the cross goes against our appetite. One appetite we have is to be good and to be religious. And good and religious people pursue their appetites in one of two ways. Number one. There are some people who really hunger for being awesome at religion, and they're just into it, just really good at being religious and really good at not doing bad things or really good at hiding the bad things they're doing, uh, one or both of those things. So some people are just motivated. I'm really good at doing religious things. There's another kind of religious person which I think might be a little more prevalent. Prevalent. common. This is a religious person who is lousy at being good and they're religious because in their minds relationship with God is like the two scales and I need to keep the good side of my scale sort of at least even with the bad side of my scale. So I'm going to spend Monday through Friday trying to be really good because I know on the weekend I'm going to really tear it up. And and this is really, really common and and I know many of us in this room say, well, thank the Lord I don't do that. Listen, you do it constantly constantly. We're all doing this. We're all trying to pay back God and do penance and, oh, I did this bad thing wrong and so I'm going to be good at doing this for a week and whatever we might do. So the enemy of the cross is being good or being religious in some sense because therefore I don't need the cross. And that's living as an enemy of the cross of Christ. I can be good enough to pay for my own sin and so therefore I don't need the cross. Or I can pay for some of my sins so I just need some of the cross I don't need it as much as somebody else does Galatians 6.14 let me show you what this looks like a couple of verses here Galatians 6.14 Bible says this but it's up on the screen far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world so here's what the Bible is saying Far be it from me to boast in anything except for the cross of Christ. Well, how do you boast in the cross of Christ? You say this Jesus died for a sinner like me. By his grace, he gave me the Spirit that I might trust and receive salvation. I need the cross as much today as I did yesterday, and I will boast that God was so diligent to save a sinner like me. Okay? What does it look like to not boast in the cross of Christ? I was saved. Because God needed me on his team. Because of my gifting. Because I am awesome Christian sauce. And I am living my Christian life as an example to others to show them how amazing it is to live for Jesus and to hide my sin and make sure nobody knows I do anything wrong. And, And Paul said, I have nothing to boast about. The enemy of the cross is any, anything I might count for myself that is something other than Jesus saved a wreck like me but in terms of recognizing Jesus saved a wreck like me he's saying I will boast about that all day long Jesus saved me somebody comes up to Paul hey listen Paul I want to point something out to you you have a little trouble with personal relationships you're a bit abrasive you drive people away from you you think you're in prison because of Jesus we think you're just annoying something like this why do you think Barnabas left Okay? Somebody said it this way. Somebody had always had bad neighbors. At a certain point, somebody went to him. Don't think it's the neighbors. Paul, he's calling a spade a spade. And what would Paul say? I know when Jesus saved me from it. Can you believe Jesus would save an abrasive, pain-in-the-rear guy like me? That's a a boast in the cross of Christ. He said, well, no, no, no. That, 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 That doesn't seem right. That doesn't mean Paul is okay with his sin. He certainly wasn't. But his boasting would only be, when I get to heaven, I get to walk into heaven, and I get to hang out with Jesus because of why? Cross only. And that is his boast. Okay, look over at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 27. I think it'll be up on the screen. I'm going to read quite a few verses here, uh, but, and you can stay with me. Don't be like the disciples going to sleep. No, I'm kidding. If you need a nap, take a nap. I don't mind. It's online. You can watch it later. Verse 27, look what Paul says to the city of Corinth. Now, keep in mind, the city of Corinth, this is what this is written to, 1 Corinthians. This is a very educated, very wealthy city. The people he's writing to, very established, very powerful, very important. And uh, he wanted to let them know how he was approaching ministry in their city. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. How many humans will boast in the presence of God? Zero. And this is verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. He is coming to this very educated, very affluent city and saying, I, I don't, I don't I need to fight to be important in your eyes. Jesus is Lord of the universe. Nobody will boast in his, in his presence, and he is crucified. Your wisdom, your Greek wisdom, your philosophical learning, your ethical teaching, I don't need, I have time for it. Jesus died for sinners like me. And this is Paul's boast. Okay, look at the first couple of verses of chapter 2. It continues on. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So here's the Apostle Paul who, if he wanted to in Corinth, could have preached their socks off. He decided in going to the city of Corinth to preach a very simple, basic, even dull message. So that they would only hear Christ. He left out all the interesting stuff and the entertaining stuff and the stories of being beaten in Lystra and left for dead and, and fighting animals in Ephesus. And he said, He's got, you know, Jesus died for sinners like you. With a mind towards calling them out of this and saying, Christ goes against your appetite for nobility and learning. There is no boast in Christ except Christ crucified and Christ raised from the dead. So the enemy of the cross is the good, the religious, the noble, anyone who needs something to brag about enemy of the cross of Christ. Okay, go back to What book are we in? Philippians 3. Okay, go back. The other side of that coin, two sides of the coin. One side of the coin is the good religious people who want to boast about Christ. The other side of the cross the coin is those who aren't seeking to be good. Look what it says, the end is destruction god their god is their belly and they glory in their shame the other way of living is the enemy of the cross of christ is saying god's call to holiness in my life is meaningless i can do whatever i want mind on earthly things a mind on i am called in this life to pursue what my appetites dictate i need success i need relational closeness i need to impress others. I need a good job. I need a good reputation. I need sexual gratification. I need to be uh, well looked up to, whatever it might be. My appetites dictate this, and I will pursue those appetites. And in fact, in our culture, and if we pretend like we're not a part of our culture, we're missing it, ethics are not that which frame our desires. Our desires determine that which is ethical, That is the the culture you and I have been raised up in, which what is right is answered by this question. What do you want? And if you tell me what I want is wrong, you are wronger for telling me that what I want is wrong. Okay, this is the culture we've been living. Now, I caution you, many of us uh, are getting up under our religious soapbox. Well, that's right. That's right. Our culture is going to that place in a handbasket. You want to be respectful. Paul is writing this to the church. He's writing this to you and me. He's reminding you and me we don't like being told we're wrong. He's writing to you and me. We are constantly looking for ways to establish that the things in my life that I know are wrong are really, no, they're okay. How do we do that? Number one, we compare them to the wrong things other people are doing. Okay, I've got some things in my life and they're kind of bad. I binge watch Netflix six hours a night. Okay, I probably shouldn't do that. I'm not saying I do that. Todd does it. No, I'm kidding. I don't know if Todd does it. So, but at least I'm not sleeping around on the weekend. So, you know, we're good. That's one way we establish what I'm doing is okay. Right? Right? Okay, so, yeah, I, I drink too much. Uh, the Bible says uh, not to get drunk, and, you know, a couple of weeks, I like to get a little wasted. I mean, what's the big deal? Got to, t- got to check out every now and then. It's not all the time. It's just every now and then, like, get, get a little plowed, all right? It's not like I'm doing crack. You see what we did? So what I'm doing is okay. The Bible is quite clear. Don't, be get, drunk, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's not a, a question of what's right or wrong. And one of the ways to walk against the cross of the Christ is as believers to convince ourselves over and over again, no, what I'm doing is okay. Or what I'm doing is not that bad, so it's okay. And if we're going to walk according to the gospel, we have to look at the cross and be willing to say, the stuff in my life that is not okay, put him on the cross. And I need to be clear on that. Do I want to keep doing the things that put Jesus on the cross? Well, of course I don't. And I need to call my appetites into question. So don't be fooled. The walk of the cross goes against our appetites and there are many times we are going to need to learn to say no to that which we want. Turn back to Galatians chapter 6. You probably are still there. Galatians chapter 6 verses 7, 8, and 9 is what the Bible says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows that will he also reap. If you sow wheat, what do you reap? It's not a true question. It's wheat. All right, nice. Nailed it. Okay, yeah, you're going to heaven. I'm kidding. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Whatever you sow, you reap. So that's a simple observation. It's the, it's the notion of consequences. You speed, you get a ticket, you pay a fine. All right. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from, from the flesh reap what? corruption. When we sow to our own flesh, meaning we seek to gratify our own flesh, we will reap from our flesh corruption. Has anybody done something they know is wrong and regretted it? Yes. Yeah, okay, you have. I don't know if you're hazy on this. You have. Some of you, though, it was like this morning, so it's a little fresh. I understand. So, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. This is a simple call, not to earn our salvation, but to recognize the, the truth of the harvest. When we sow to the things of the Spirit, we will reap things that are eternal, and that's really good. Our appetite, though, is so convincing. We want to sow to our flesh. We want to pursue what we want. And the walk of the cross, by its very nature, goes against our appetites. So let's not be fooled. Religion and flesh are the same thing. They both miss the gospel and they both assume we know better than God what ought to be. Religion says I don't need God to get saved. The flesh says I don't need to get saved. And the walk of the cross will go against our appetites. All right. Let's finish up with the last uh, couple of verses. Look at uh, Philippians 3. 20 through 21. The walk of the cross, thankfully, by God's grace, has a glorious future. Um, when I was a kid, I didn't like steak. Uh, and I know that I, it's only by God's grace I'm willing to admit that in front of people. Um, I know, shaking your head. I know. I, know. I, I don't tell you, but what I would do is, I, I shouldn't say, I've told you this story before. I, we would eat steak, and I would chew it, but I didn't like it, and so I would throw it Uh, I would throw it under my brother's chair. Um, (laughs) My brother loves steak. And so at some point, somebody said, listen, we're not idiots. (laughs) Brother's not throwing steak under his chair. (laughs) He's eating it. Um, But at a certain point, uh, I I, I ate a steak. I don't know what it was. I said, this is amazing. I love steak. I don't know what happened. Something shifted. So here's what we need to understand about our appetites. The issue is not that we shouldn't have appetites. The issue is we need better taste. The issue is we need better appetites. And what the Bible is calling us to do is understand our appetites one day will be what they ought to be. And that day is in the glorious future and we should be walking towards that. So the walk of the cross has a glorious future where our appetites are then aligned with the gospel and with the person of Christ. So look what it says in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. So you go on vacation or you go to college or you go to a, a, a new job or, or whatever it might be and you're meeting new people and you've got to make conversation. I'm terrible at making conversation, but here's what somebody told me once. Uh, to get conversation started, you ask us, you're on a cruise ship or you're at a resort, what do you start with? Now, where are you from? Say, oh, I'm from Medford, Oregon. Oh, I got an aunt who lives there, whatever it might be, right? So where are you from? The conversation starts with that. And Paul is coming at us with this. Where are you from? You're from heaven. That's what he's... For Christians, heaven is not where we're going. Heaven is where we're from. Look what it says. Does it, does it say we're awaiting to go to heaven? Does it say that? Look at, the, look at your text. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await what? Jesus. We're not waiting for heaven. We're from there. We're waiting for Jesus so we can join him, and what he's going to do is change our bodies so now we can pursue our appetites because all of our appetites will be good. All of our appetites will be to pursue relationship with Christ. Heaven is not so much where we're going It's where we're from. That is our citizenship is heaven. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might have the righteousness of God of God so we're citizens of heaven and where we live now is in an outpost of the glory of Christ we are an an embassy for the glory of Christ in the midst of a world who has abandoned him we wait for Christ our true Lord to come and make it so we are no longer an embassy but we are home but he's not here yet I don't know if you noticed we're still an outpost so we're waiting for Christ the true King and Savior to bring His authority to bear where we live and to change us so our appetites will pursue Him and Him alone. It says, the Bible says, we will be changed and our glory will be like His. C.S. Lewis put it this way, if you were to encounter a person and what they will be like in glory, you would be tempted to worship them because we will be changed to be like Him. We won't be God, of course. We will always be His creation, but we will be made like Him and glorified in Christ. His power to rule will raise us and lift us up. This home, this place is not where our hope resides. Our hope resides in the return of Christ to make Him like ourselves. We await Christ to bring heaven to us so that we can experience hope with Him forever. Turn back uh, to Philippians. Turn back, were you already there? Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Citizenship is in heaven. We await Christ. He will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. We will be transformed. It doesn't matter how much you look in the mirror. They did a study once on when men stopped flexing in the mirror. You, did you, do you know what it is? It's never. It's... It's never. We just don't see it. Don't, and don't tell us we're wrong, please. You know, say, no, there's nothing there. You should stop doing that. No, just let us live in our little fantasy world, all right? But it, the Bible says, saying, no, 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 your lowly body, whatever it is in its lowliness, in its brokenness, in its wholeness, he's saying it will be made to be like his body, and we will be glorified in him by his power. His power will do it. The walk of Christ has a glorious future alright couple of questions and we're going to end with this and Adam and his crew is going to come up and we'll sing one more uh, song the walk of the cross is a group of activity just a couple of questions on this what would it mean for you uh, for your walk with Christ to move out of, of the realm of individual and isolated into walking with Christ with others now everybody's different Everybody has different personalities. Some people uh, like being with lots of people. Other people don't like being with lots of people. So everybody is going to be different. doesn't mean you need to join a Bible study group of 20 people. But just taking this concept that what would it mean for my walk of Christ to be interlaced with others' walk with Christ? What would, what would that mean? What might that look like? Another way of asking this is who am I imitating? Who am I imitating? And you can't really imitate somebody from afar. You have to have a relationship with them to know what's going on. Who am I seeking to imitate in my walk with Christ? In one particular area or many? Is there someone who I spend time with on the phone or I email or something or just something where I'm trying to engage with them on what the Lord is doing in their life that I might see that worked out in my life? And the reverse of that is true. Who, who is imitating me? And see, all of a sudden, many of us get very, very insecure. And you we say, well, nobody would ever, please, Lord, don't have anybody imitate what I'm doing, okay? Now, again, that's because we want to boast in something other than the cross. But if Christ is doing his work in me and you by the power of the cross, there is something Christ is doing in you that needs to be passed on to somebody else. I don't know what it is, but that's the way the body of Christ works. Every person walking with Christ Has something in their relationship with Christ that needs to be passed on to somebody else, so we ask the question both ways: Who am I imitating? Then the other question is: Who is who is imitating me? Who am I encouraging and challenging in their walk with the Lord? Doesn't mean you have to join a ministry. Could be in your home. Could be in your work. Could be uh, your neighbor. Doesn't have to be formal. But the questions are fair, none the same. So, the walk across a group activity. Secondly. The walk of cross goes against our appetites. Just, again, a couple of questions to think about. What do you hunger for? Meaning this, what do you look forward to? What makes your heart beat fast? You think about something, oh, that, that would be cool. And those are good, but we just need to be aware how infrequently that thing is Christ. And that's where we can come to Christ in confession and repentance. Lord, you know these 10 different things that really motivate me. And they're not bad in themselves, but they're not the world. They're not you. God, I need you to help me have my appetites reworked. What does it look like to humble myself and have a heart for you alone? What do I hunger for? Now, some of us, though, do have things that we know are wrong, and we're holding on to them, and we don't want to admit it. It might be time that you need to say, I know this is wrong. It's time to start saying no. It's time to get with somebody who can help me walk through saying no to this in my life. This is wrong. This is rebellion, and I need to worship Christ through obedience. So, the walk of the cross goes against our appetites. Finally, uh, this, the walk of the cross has a glorious future, and our citizenship is in heaven. have, how do I say this? Everybody would like to be the the ambassador to France. If you're a... you're an ambassador type person. I'm not. I asked. They wouldn't have me. Um, Everyone wants to be the ambassador to France or the ambassador to the UK. There's all kinds of power and prestige. And it's mostly dinner parties and tea, right? Nobody wants to be the ambassador in Tehran. In fact, we haven't had one since the 80s, right? You remember the hostage crisis? Nobody wants that ambassadorship Somebody donates $2 million to a presidential campaign. He's handing down ambassadorships like they're candy. Now, every president does this. Don't get me wrong. I'm not throwing anybody under the bus except all the presidents. Um, so, Lizzie, you gave $2 million in my campaign. I really want to thank you. We just established a new embassy in Iran. I think it's just for you. They would say, uh, Pardon me? That's a no. Right? Nobody wants that embassy. That's our embassy. Right, All of us want to pretend like we're the ambassadors from heaven to Paris, to France. No, we're in Iran. This world is not our home. We're not looking for ways to get the culture to line up with Christ. We're looking for ways for people to just see Jesus. And over time, that's going to get worse and worse if I read my Bible right. We need to recognize we are ambassadors of heaven we're not looking for ways to become better at being in the world we're looking for ways to become better at being like christ and the more we do that the more our embassy is going to stick out sometimes it will be appreciated many times it will not the question is this when people see us do they see ambassadors for heaven or do they just see good citizens and there's a difference what does it mean if our citizenship is in heaven How am I going to encounter my culture? How am I going to have conversations at home and in my workplace? Is my life operating on a different frequency in Christ, or am I just another Southern Oregon American who won't do some of the funner stuff on the weekend? The walk of the cross is a group activity, goes against our appetites, and thank the Lord, has a glorious future.